Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, our website, and our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from what I once thought of as my temporary Seneca South studio here in my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's looking more permanent these days. Today on Seneca, we are talking about Huawei and 5G. Uh, Given the prevailing political winds right now here in the United States, things are going to continue to be tough for Huawei and uh, likely to get even harder. On this program, we have talked often about the current U.S. administration's animus toward Huawei and the reasons that underlie that, and I don't think it's necessary to go through all of that again, nor do I think it's the best use of our time today to talk about the latest in the Meng Wanzhou case or the travails of Huawei's chip unit, uh, High Silicon, which is increasingly under onerous U.S. restrictions, or to parse Huawei Chairman Rin Zhengfei's recent use of some common Chinese idiom and how that was seized on as evidence of his company's nefarious intent. But what I do want to do today is talk about what happens when a fundamentally binary approach to this particular company, and in this case, I don't even hesitate to say that it's not so much the company as the country it's believed to represent, when this binary black and white approach is brought to bear on a really complex technology that involves hundreds of companies, large and small, with intertwined IP, with a highly globalized supply chain, a technology standard set over the course of many years by multiple participants from many countries, it often feels as if here in the U.S. we are setting out rightly or wrongly to to try to fix this dizzyingly complex and intricate machine, and the only tool we have to hand is a hammer. So 5G technology, I think, is, is poorly understood by many of the lawmakers who seek to regulate it, let alone by the laypersons whose lives are going to be transformed by it if even half of what they say about its revolutionary nature turns out to be more than mere hype. Uh, So today, I hope that we can demystify some of what 5G is and what some of the issues are that make it so complex and therefore not so amenable to hammer-based solutions. So I also want to talk about how U.S. strategy has evolved over the last year or so and uh, where China, the U.S., various European and East Asian countries and other major nations who are currently working on 5G, where they are in their actual deployment of 5G networks. And I want to talk about the next generation and competing visions of how the process of setting standards is likely to proceed for 6G, given all the acrimony and the travails of uh, the poor Chinese players these days. So with that ambitious agenda laid out today on Seneca, I want to welcome two guests. First up, Andy Purdy is Chief Security Officer of Huawei USA. In his career, he has worked as a federal prosecutor, 
as special counsel of the House Ethics Committee, as a White House staffer where he helped draft the 2003 National Strategy to Secure Cyberspace, and at the Department of Homeland Security where he helped to create and launch the National Cybersecurity Division. At DHS, Andy served as the nation's top cybersecurity official. He later went on to the private sector, joining CSC, Computer Sciences Corporation, before it was merged with HP Enterprise to create DXC. Andy now joins us from Washington, D.C. Andy, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. It's good to be here. Also joining us from D.C. is Paul Triolo. Paul is with the Eurasia Group, where he leads the firm's newest practice, focusing on global technology policy issues, cybersecurity, internet governance, ICT regulatory issues, and emerging areas such as automation, AI, big data, 5G, and fintech and blockchain. I should add that he writes a fantastic column for SupChina all about tech and tech policy. Paul, welcome back to the program. Great, Kaiser. Great to be back. And uh, I do owe you a, a column that, I'm, that, that you'll get probably within a couple days. <laughs> Great. We last went on Digital Silk Road, which is terrific. Thank you. Uh, I want to start with some of the ABCs of 5G technology. I, I think most of us know that it promises to deliver much higher speeds due to greater bandwidth, lower latency, which is just another way of saying that everything's just going to go faster. Uh, l- let's go with this from an end-user perspective first. What What is 5G going to enable us to do that we can't really do now with existing 4G LTE connectivity? Andy, to you first on that. I, th- I think 5G is really about bringing computing power to the edge, and that has to do with uh, speed, throughput, the amount of data that comes through, latency, the delay, uh, and multiple connections uh, at the endpoint. So computing power is going to enable much greater use of sensors, uh, machine-to-machine communication, mm-hmm. greater automation, uh, and the use of uh, artificial and, and augmented intelligence uh, that's going to, together with the digitization of uh, government and industries, is going to be a tremendous driver uh, for for GDP for growth of jobs and and for our way of life. So it sounds like it's going to be more B2B applications for it, more uh, things that are in the IoT sphere rather than just sort of, hey, I can now watch faster video. Just say, yeah, I think Andy's hit on all the right high points. I think the big big point is that the main difference between 4G and 5G is that 5G is is directed at these applications, is the B2B applications, is the smart factories, automation, things like autonomous vehicles. So yeah, the, 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 the consumer is going to get faster, high definition uh, streaming videos to their phone. The difference will be that they could, that everybody at a football game can do it at the same time. Right, um, right. And that'll be, that'll be kind of cool. But, but the big thrust, except that, that we're never going to all gather in big stadiums again. <laughs> right. Yeah. If we ever get together in stadiums again. Right. But, but the real promise is that are those, um, those, the, the computing at the edge of the network and that, and that's the, that's that's something that you couldn't do without some of these things like low latency and uh, and higher speed and and machine to machine. Right. So I think there's consensus that I mean the important piece of this is the mobile edge computing. And you see, uh, this isn't something that's entirely new to five G. It's been a feature of all the mobile network architecture really since three G. But it now they're able to sort of shift more of it. To, it's taking on an, a more important role. Uh, what is the best way maybe to explain to the layman how mobile edge computing functions? and how it's an improvement on, on earlier architecture. 
it's well, Andy, I think hit on, hit on it um, uh, right away here. It, it's really just pushing the, the the computing power out farther. So think of, of the cloud. It's really it, the thing about five G is it's cloud centric, cloud native, and so you're pushing that cloud capability out to the edge of the network. So so that all your requests aren't going back to some big data center that that's far away. But you're if you're doing autonomous vehicles, for example, you're getting the cars are getting situational awareness from a data center that's pushed out closer to where um, the the sort of end devices are, in this case, your, say your Tesla um, or your other smart vehicle. Um, so it's pushing, pushing that computing power closer to the applications. So for example, the classic case will be a smart factory on a campus. So you have a campus deployment of 5G, and that campus is gonna include a, you know, a lot of data center <laughs> um, capability there and, and infrastructure to support all that kind, all that computing at the edge, you know, rather than having all that data go back over the telecom system over fiber back to some data center, uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, you're going to have a lot of that computing power in the cloud, right there at the edge. Um, so your AI algorithms, for example, are going to be able to, are going to be operating both on the edge on your device, but also in the cloud. Um, and so you're going to, you know, you're you're bringing the computing power closer to where it's needed. And Andy, what does that do to our, our thinking about security? Because this is a very different architecture. There's, uh, it's much more distributed. Does that raise the challenge for actually uh, realizing very secure computing over 5G? Well, I think, it, I think it does raise the challenge. And I think we have to remember there are multiple players and there are different uh, sets of standards, requirements, possible conformance mechanisms. So you got the telecom and the mobile operators. You have the telecom equipment suppliers and other third-party suppliers. Uh, you have uh, those who are bringing service to people, and you have individual consumers. So you've got to be worried about IoT. You have to be worried about network security. But I, I, I think of it as uh, we as a society, compared to when uh, President Bush released the National Strategy to Secure Cyberspace, uh, in February of 2003, uh, where all the talk coming out of there was, oh, cybersecurity is important, it matters, let's raise the bar, let's pay attention. That didn't matter at all compared to how much it's going to matter with 5G. And it's not because the architecture is different. Uh, it's because I would suggest that we're going to become increasingly dependent. Yeah, we cared about cybersecurity in the past, but, you know, data breaches are fine, the companies recover, ransomware attacks were significant, we had the Saudi Aramco, uh, you know, we had Stuxnet, we did have some physical mm -hmm. consequences, but in terms of what really mattered to our, our, our security and our national security, it didn't matter that much, but now it's going to matter, lives are going to depend on it, and it's, not, and, and it's two fundamental things in my view. Um, one is resilience. The things we're going to be coming depend, dependent on, whether it's remote surgery or autonomous driving, uh, uh, e-manufacturing, uh, e-farming, uh, how we make our water processes, the sensors, machine-to-machine -machine communication, that if that stuff shuts down, we're going to be in deep trouble. And secondly, if the bad guys come in and corrupt the data, not, I'm not talking about the personal data, which is important, but the data on which everything runs and how everything works, if that's corrupted, like our, the SWIFT financial system, we're screwed. Because how are we going to make things work then? So it becomes much more important that we make this work. We've got an ecosystem of different players. That said, with the coalition and activity of 3GBP, GSMA, and a number of governments and, and private organizations, the development of 5G standards, just as 5G is going to be rolled out with the different business scenarios, starting with the, uh, the, the, the speed part, um, with a threat assessment of each one, and then what are the controls, and then standards to improve 
uh, to, to add security enhancements. So there are security enhancements already in place from 5G, but they're going to be different scenarios rolled out, which is why I'm particularly encouraged by what I heard this week, is that the U.S. government is starting to get more involved in the standards process, in the 3GPP process for 5G, mm. which is very, very important. So, Andy, I, I see sort of two things happening at the same time right now. Uh, one is that uh, the greater reliance that we will have on, on data security, on network security, uh, as we become more reliant on these systems, is to become a more important part of mission-critical aspects of our life. Uh, that is one thing that is raising uh, concerns about security, but there's something parallel that's happening as well, which is geopolitical, as you, as you say. And it's, I think, often hard for people to tweeze these two things apart, right? Um, these these anxieties are sort of coming at us together in parallel. Uh, what, what would you say, uh, do you think that there's something sort of more inherent to the technology itself that makes security concerns uh, more important? Or do you think that uh, a huge part of that anxiety is actually coming out of our concerns about the participation of Chinese actors like Huawei and ZTE? Well, I think the importance of 5G is, is probably the, uh, the most important factor. Um, in, terms of, um, in terms of the technology, there is a misconception, I would argue, about how 5G is evolving. And the U.S. government has been a big advocate of this. They've been pressing this around the world. Uh, Australia has been a big advocate of this position. And in fact, there's actually a debate about whether Australia started or the U.S. started it. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Australia, right before the Australian government decided to block Huawei from competing for 5G, there was no discussion of it having started with, with Australia. It, it, it started with uh, the U.S. But that is the notion that as computing power comes to the edge, that the core will become closer to the edge, the perimeter of the network. Mm -hmm. And right now, the standards process uh, builds on the architectures of 3G and 4G. My understanding is with the projected releases of the 5G standards, that architecture is going to be the same. So um, the distinction between the core and the RAN, we're always trying to compete in the RAN. The RAN is the radio access network. Exactly. Right. Um, and so the core is going to become closer to the edge. So for example, in remote areas, the issue of physical security at the edge is going to be important because people are going to have the ability to hack into some equipment and, and touch the core. But there will be maintained a virtual distinction between the core and the RAN, building on the network security methods of, of the past, given the role of the, the uh, telecom and mobile operators in terms of how they manage the networks and how they manage access, strengthened by the security enhancements that have already been identified for 5G. So I mean, that's something that I've heard you talk about before, is uh, how the, the relatively separate nature of the network core in 5G and, and the RAN, the radio access network, should allay some of these concerns. The risk management mechanisms and processes and the visibility of the, of the operators relative to the equipment vendors and others uh, gives a strong basis for confidence uh, that we have enhanced security and that when you look at the different viral slices of cyberspace that are going to be enabled to allow all these different technologies, you see with the enhanced in, in, encryption that uh, the folks that are authorized are going to be able to move quickly between one viral slice and the other. So the security protections precautions are very, very real. There are important risk mitigation mechanisms that are necessary in addition to that, given the capabilities of at least five nation states, but we can get into that. Yeah, uh, let, let me also just jump in. 
Sure. I think the other issue is sort of around software and how much of the of the network now is, is sort of virtualized, which is this term you hear a lot, virtualized, the virtualized radio access network, for example. And so there's a lot of concern because, yeah, there, there, this is this has been happening with 4G is gradually a lot of network functions have been have been turned into software so that they're no longer um, a piece of hardware. So they're subject to the same kinds of vulnerabilities that, that software is normally uh, subject to. So there's a lot of concern about that. And I think, um, you know, that's it may be overblown because that, you know, that, that, that means that companies that are in the operators and vendors that are deploying these, these um, capabilities, you know, they have lots of other tools then to, to monitor the network. They can use an AI algorithm, for example, to, to monitor network traffic and, and, and determine, you know, any anomalies. So that the move to software is not inherently just about vulnerabilities, but it's also one. There are other uh, advantages you can get when you have some of these functions being being, uh, being in software, but that's part of the debate around this issue, which is if the vendor has to do more further software updates, more software updates as a result of the virtualization of the network, that creates a vulnerability. Right, but the the mischaracterization of that by officials of the U.S. government uh, has 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 been pretty significant. Um, they, they look at the updates for like mobile phones and, and automatic updates and computers and whatever. The updates for the telecom equipment are done in a different process, a different way. And they're tested and evaluated and then they're cleared by the operators before they're deployed. They're not deployed automatically in the same way as, as the other kinds of technology. But, but that is, is part of the, 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 uh, the universe of the concerns that have been raised. So they've been thinking sort of Microsoft Windows patches, right, uh, where... And that's been one of the most important cybersecurity advances of the last 15 years uh, was Microsoft Automatic Update. You know, you talk about awareness campaigns and, and like eight or 10 years after the launch of the National Cybersecurity Alliance, I asked the executive director at a meeting, what was the most important development in terms of their cybersecurity awareness efforts? It was Microsoft Automatic Update, which is sure. not, a, a, you know, an, an awareness effort. But another thing that's been misstated is that, that some government officials have said that Huawei updates our telecom equipment from China. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's just demonstrably <laughs> false. The operators would never permit such a thing, and neither would we. You know, you we've gotten you know fairly deep into the weeds already. I want to back up a little bit. Um, just now, you talked about uh, 3GPP, about GSMA. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the standards process. Uh, how were standards arrived at for for 5G? I mean, before we get into the industry players who are involved, let's talk about maybe these main standards setting bodies, 3GPP, and at a broader sort of more general level, ITU, the International Telecoms Union. What do these different bodies do? And, and what's the relationship between standards and patents, between standards and the intellectual property that's actually held by, by companies? It's a big, a big and complicated topic. Um, yeah. Basically, basically, I think the way to think about it is the ITU basically sort of sets the requirements for interoperability. And then right now we have 3GPP, which was set up for three, as it sounds like for 3G, but it's been this this very successful standards body that 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 uh, operates uh, with the, with companies. There's 500 participating organizations, mostly companies. There's some academic organizations, and they have multiple subcommittees. Uh, on all key aspects uh, of the network, and they in, in, and companies come to the standards bodies 
and they bring intellectual property on a FRAND basis. That's fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. So they're, they're basically bringing intellectual property to try to try to become part of the standards package, if you will, that's mm-hmm. going to be uh, the recipe. I think the way to think about it is here's the recipe. If you're going to have interoperable 5G networks, here is how you have to build them so that, that everybody can roam and, and, and interoperate. So it's just the recipe. And then the patents become a really big issue around what becomes essential uh, to that recipe. And, th- and that's a huge <laughs> and ugly sort of legal mess because um, companies will come uh, and they'll declare their, their patents, for example, um, their patent families. And then uh, in some cases, they haven't got those, those patents uh, approved in their own country, you know, or let alone in other patent organizations in their country. So, it's a, it's a, so the patent process is a very much, much longer process of determining at the end of the day who has those essential patents and then who has to pay royalties for that. And that's a very ugly and complicated process. If you look at some of the studies around this just recently, even um, in terms of who has the most patents around 5G, it really depends on if you filter it through that, that filter of essentiality, right? So if you, so if you just look at the numbers declared, for example, Huawei looks, looks like it has a lot. Yes. And some of those have been, have been sort of, uh, uh, you know, admitted, acknowledged. Um, And then, but if you look at it sort of just through this lens of essentiality, then others will say, well, you know, it looks like, uh, Samsung or some of the other major players have, have, have a bigger role. So, I mean, basically you have the bigger players like Samsung, Huawei, CTE, Nokia, and Ericsson. The, those are the big, the big players in the patents and, and the standards and patents game. There's a whole bunch of other smaller companies that have little niche areas uh, in the patents game. I, um, I have a, a whole appendix in a paper I wrote on 5G that lists all the Chinese players. And it's, it's really surprising how many players there are. And then uh, each country will have a lot of different different players in there. But the main, the bulk of the patent, of the standards and the patents go to uh, sort of the big the big players uh, in the industry. Qualcomm also from the U.S. Qualcomm, of course, um, is also a big player because of their role in uh, in designing the chipsets for both uh, handsets and for base stations. And so they're also a big player. Some of the key, key designers of, of semiconductors are also uh, players. But but it's a very the process has evolved over the last. I don't know, what do you think? Decade, um, and 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 so it's 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 um, it's work. It seems to work really well. There's been a lot, there's some criticism about you know, but politicization of the process. But basically, it's a it's a technical. It's basically a technically merit driven process. We'll we'll get into some of that. But let, let's get give Eddie a chance to jump in here. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to have to play back the recording so I can better understand it. I'll listen to what Paul just said again. <laughs> um, and one of the issues is. Uh, and why I'm so glad the U.S. government is, is, is apparently, you know, going to jump in on the process, hopefully a, a lot more, is that when you look at the threat scenario, you, you look at the threat matrix, for example, the European Union did earlier this year of, of 5G, and you look at different business <laughs> scenarios, very important to get quality input about uh, what the threats are, what can be done to address them, and what is important enough to put in a standard. You know, what you say the standard would be is, is a whole other question. So there's been some criticism um, that the standards process doesn't uh, eliminate enough of the, let's call them the vulnerabilities. They don't address enough of the threats. And so because of the competition among uh, us and our suppliers, for example, you know, we compete to add additional security enhancement. So that question of how much do you incorporate into a standard and how much do you let other folks basically 
add security enhancements. That, that's again a difficult thing, but but that's why transparency is so important, and that's why an initiative like the Commerce Department. Uh, NTIA initiative for software bill of materials is so important to make it easier for folks to understand what software is in the products, where did it come from, so they can trace back if there's a vulnerability, they can figure out where to come from, how, how do we get it fixed more quickly. Let's talk about why, uh, what, what really sort of pushed China and Chinese companies to want to, you know, have a more central seat at the table in the patent setting or in the standard setting process with 5G. Uh, Huawei, as I understand it, um, now holds quite a number of, of standard essential patents in 5G. Uh, that didn't come easily, though. What, what were, what, give us some of the historical background as to why China felt sort of disappointed in earlier rounds and uh Maybe you know was it was it mainly that they were paying out so much in royalties to companies like Qualcomm that they wanted to get involved? Was it a, a matter of national pride, or was it because you know they wanted to, to have an unfair advantage in in, in uh, nefarious dealings that they as <laughs> is so often uh, uh, alleged? Well, do you want to kick that off? Sure. Well, I think you have to go back to to really to 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 two G and three G. China was not really much of a player in two G, but for three G you have this very interesting situation where, where China, a Chinese company, uh, and backed very much by the Chinese government at that time, because China's, China's telecom sector at that time was very much, you know, still state, very much state-driven, the Ministry of Post and Telecommunications, now the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology. And so there was the standard that they developed uh, sort of late in the game on 3G called TDSCDMA. And yeah. it, was, it was a product of Siemens and uh, a company called China called Datang. And so it was a weird sort of standard and it was pushed forward to the ITU as an alternative to the, U, to the, to the prevalent standard at the time, CDMA. Um, and it, it, it sort of here's a Chinese standard uh, to be, you know, that, that we want to see. So the ITU accepted this as a standard. The problem was nobody, no Chinese carriers wanted to use the standard. <laughs> yeah, they, they actually used sort of asymmetric regulation and foisted it on poor China Mobile, right? Right, exactly. So and the, a total, total loss of lots of lots of money down that thing. So I think what what came out of that process was, was yes, the, the Chinese government pushed its companies to be, uh, you know, more integrated into the standards process because, and you know, one of the big drivers, frankly, is the, is the money around the patents. It's, it's a very much a patent and royalty gain uh, here. And, you know, and also there's, there is a certain amount of prestige, although I, I tend to sort of downplay that. I think it's really, the problem is that the China, Chinese companies didn't want to keep playing Qualcomm and, 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 you know, all the mm. European carriers, all these royalties in, in, in perpetuum. So that, so, and, and also at the same time, Huawei and ZTE and other players in the Chinese system were, be, were plowing more money into R and D. So they were actually developing that intellectual property and, 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 and innovating in the space. So they had something to bring to the standards bodies that participate in, in, in the standards process. So that, that, that sort of, that, that process played out a, a little bit in 4G. And then for 5G, the Chinese government very much organized itself around, you know, the, both sort of prioritizing all elements of a 5G rollout um, uh, and bringing together industry players and getting everybody sort of on the same page. And part of that, Part of that was the standards issue, but but that was really again. You can't sort of the government can't push that. Is it unusual for a state to do that? Does Korea, for example, South Korea, do that with its players? Does it get behind and organize uh, and and push them to really you know aggressively involve themselves in standards processes, or is that unusual? 
Um, I think it's probably, uh, I, I don't know the, of, of, of other countries that do that. That's, one, of course, one of the criticisms of the, in the U.S. case is that the U.S. government doesn't really um, play much of a role in the standards process, right? It sort of leaves, the, leaves that to the private sector because it sees that as a, as a private sector issue. I think um, I, Korea, I, don't, I, I think Samsung is just a very capable um, you know, tech, technology company. And, so they, they, and they've made a decision to move into, into the mobile arena. And so they, they have a lot of, 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 uh, of um, capacity to throw at a problem like this. But all, when it comes down to it, though, again, it has to be that the, the, private, the, the government can provide sort of a, some broader strategy around the whole issue of deployment and then work with its companies and work with its carriers and try to, to come up with a, you know, a, some kind of a coherent strategy to, to accelerate the rollout of 5G, for example. Andy, you wanted to jump in here? But so, it's, so it's not a government function, really. Right, right. So let me add that yeah. when Paul was talking about kind of the history and, and kind of the Chinese government involvement some time back, Huawei was basically pursuing standards that weren't working in China. So Huawei had to pursue a lot of its business outside of China because right. we were favoring the standards that were favored elsewhere. Secondly, the standards process, and, and maybe it's implicit, is, is, is very important because when you're a global company, you want to be able to have as common a set of requirements for what you build everywhere in the world, and then your customers will ask for those uh, you know, in the RFIs or, or RFPs or, or whatever. So, so standards really help focus resources. In addition, um, the issue about patents, and I think you, you guys have covered it uh, pretty well, and, and Paul just started to touch on it. R and D is absolutely critical, and you know, so we we're investing twenty billion dollars U.S. in, in R and D this year. We've invested four or five billion in in uh, in five G already, um, and we're about fifth in the world in terms of R and D investment. And that's critically important, and that's one of the reasons that I'm I'm struck by that I, I think uh, I'm, I'm glad the U.S. Is, is getting more interested in information communication technologies. Um, I don't think there's enough competition in the telecom equipment space. I don't think the financial wherewithal of our, of our competitors is as strong as it needs to be. Not that they can, you know, just go along doing business, but so that they can do business and they can innovate, they can invest in R&D and they can compete. And because everybody benefits is if there's greater competition. So R&D is critically to help meet the needs of our customers, not just today, but it's the needs of the customers in terms of how they want to keep building their business going forward. So that's a, a kind of a missing link when people talk first about our prices and then later about our quality. It's about the innovation and how we partner with companies to help them be competitive. You guys, the, the participation of Chinese companies in the standards process, I think you could argue, is, has been a success. It's been a real success story. I'm not sure everyone would see it that way. But I, I can imagine making the case that uh, involving China in this process, drawing China into this process so deeply and seeing Chinese companies so invested in it, both literally and and figuratively, it's a it's a good thing. It's you know China becoming, uh, to use a once popular phrase, a responsible stakeholder, right? I mean, what is then the objection? Just put yourself in the shoes for a second here of, of the people who've arrayed themselves against Chinese vendors and their participation in the process. What do you what what do you suppose they see? Why do they think that this is other than than something good? Well, it, it, it's a good question. I think that um, there's there's still there's still this view that that um, you know that that somehow China is and Chinese companies are flooding the government is flooding these these standards bodies with with people and and sort of influencing 
decisions around standards in ways that um, some people think are, are you know, may, may be bad. So I think the the um, bad, bad in what way? Well, I think there's a, 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 a there's a there's a sort of perception that that somehow. Chinese participation means they can sort of skew the standards in ways. There was this view that they can skew the standards in ways that could be, that could introduce vulnerabilities, right? Which is, which I think fundamentally misunderstands the standards process, which is, you know, which is not about, you know, who has the most votes or who has the most, um, um, you know, people there. It's really about the merit of a particular technology solution that's being used for, uh, to, to develop a standard. Then the other issue is, um, is around, um, you know, that, that, that because there's so many Chinese organizations and players that, that the voting in, within, in terms of, of which standard is adopted could be skewed because, um, you know, Chinese companies might vote for their, for, for their own company's standards. This, this was the accusation, I think, with Lenovo. The Lenovo uh, CEO got, got criticized because he said that he had, he had in fact, voted um, for a standard um, that, that, you know, may not have been technically the best standard. And he was uncriticized within China. But I think that's a really rare example of, hmm. of this kind of thing happening within the voting, uh, the, the voting process, because again, it is very merit based. There's, there's all, all the, all the representatives there are from our technical, very sophisticated players from companies that are participating in it. So, so the, the, the goal is to keep the politics out essentially and to, and to try to also balance you know the different regions and companies that are involved so, so there's no so so no players dominate the process hmm. Andy I was just thinking that I mean I, I don't know that I've ever actually heard this analogy floated before but uh, just given what's happened in recent months I can imagine that among those people who are dedicated to the destruction of Huawei in DC uh, they they kind of see, uh, the relationship between China and the standards bodies, IT, 3GPP, to be somehow analogous to how they envision China's relationship with the World Health Organization, with the WHO, that there's somehow been a capture of these bodies, that they're beholden to Beijing, that they've been taken over. Uh, what's the reality here? Well, I don't know that the criticism right now is of the China government being actively involved in the standards process in a bad way. I mean, Paul went over some of the history from some time ago in terms of uh, how the China government got involved. My my sense is, and it could be wrong, is that, you know, I I think along the lines of what Paul said, that there's a a criticism that that Huawei uh, and some other Chinese companies uh, put the resources into it. So we have people who can staff the various committees and subcommittees who can be the chairs or co-chairs of the different groups. We can create the proposals and that creates kind of a groundswell and, and, and sort of an unfairness. So that's why I was calling for the U.S. government to, uh, to, to get much more active in the process right. and why I'm, I'm so relieved. I haven't been told this officially, but I just heard in the last week or so that apparently the U.S. government has decided to get involved, which is great because the U.S. government can call BS if, if, if there's stuff going on where the proposals aren't fair, they aren't reasonable, there's politics or it's, it's uh, you know, commercial advantage over real, uh, addressing real risk, they can say so, and that's a good thing. Standards discussions are already underway for the the next generation for 6G. Is this attitude they have that the U.S. has had toward Chinese companies and the participation likely to change? Are they going to, you know, move to sideline Chinese companies in the 6G process as well? Um, Let me let me just jump in there. I think that one thing we haven't really talked much about, though, is the 
the the the movement of the industry towards these more open standards. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, ORAN and ORAN virtualization and and, and ORAN open radio access network. And and you know there's already sort of um, a lot of a lot of things happening in that space. Um, but the problem ends up being that you're good for for a while. You're going to have an in, a combination of integrated and open networks. That's what the state U.S. State Department now is promoting, so-called ION, integrated open uh, open networks. So because even in existing networks that are in, from an integrated supplier, for example, like Huawei or Ericsson or Nokia, there's a mixture of, of sort of proprietary solutions and and open open more open source solutions right in in that and so but the but the movement is towards to, is to open more of those components make them more interoperable so basically anybody uh, many many companies could come in design radios design different pieces of the network and 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 the carriers could then decide on which one's the best and swap them out um, and so that's that's going to also fundamentally change i think the way the standards process go, goes forward because that's the way the industry is moving now it's not quite there yet on ORAN and there's a lot of issues around uh, well, I mean, around how this is being adopted in terms of US policy on 5G. In order to have that kind of, of modularity, that interoperability, you have to have a standard in place to begin with, right? So there's still- Well, the 3 gpp also, there's also virtualization and sort of open openness within the existing standards process, right? But the industry then also is sort of moving in a direction of, of, of unbundling and sort of making more of those processes um, more open. The term they use 3 gpp is virtual virtualized. And there's some overlap between virtualized RAN and ORAN, but so that's the direction the industry is going in. So, so the talk about six six G, I think, is first of all, it's a little premature. I mean, we're, we we don't even have very very widespread deployments, uh, you know, of five G. Um, and I think there's a lot of thinking going into how six G might, you know, wh what are some of the features of that? But I think we're a long way from actually embarking on a standards process. They haven't even finished the five G standards, right? Well, let's talk about 5G and where 5G is right now. Andy, maybe you can help us get, get a sense for where everyone is in terms of 5G deployment right now, uh, the, the important geographies around the world. Uh, who's out front? Uh, you know, who's, where are they in terms of, uh, you know, numbers of, of nodes or, or the, the coverage of networks or number of subscribers? Well, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. I can I can try to I can try to pull some up, but uh, I, my understanding is South Korea, China, mm -hmm. uh, and some other places uh, are rolling out very very quickly. And the path forward, uh, I think, some the pandemic has has had an impact in, yeah. in some parts of the world uh, because each country has to make their own decisions, of course, about. Uh, how they're going to prioritize, uh, how they're going to allocate the spectrum, how they're going to allocate things like uh, the uh, you know shared locations for the base stations, uh, what they're going to do in terms of the kind of spectrum. So, uh, and then the individual companies have to decide what's the business case for how they're going to move forward. So, it's it's a little bit different in in every country uh, in the world. I think uh, I think the use of five G enabled technologies uh, with the pandemic in China and a few other countries. I think has helped demonstrate that at least in things like 5G enabled healthcare, there are really strong use cases for, for trying to move forward very quickly. And, and it also depends on, you know, the availability of devices, right? So there's, it's like, there's sort of a chicken and egg thing. You're all at the infrastructure, uh, but you need to have handsets. So for example, in the US, you know, I have a 5G logo on my phone here from AT&T, <laughs> um, but my phone is not 5G capable. In the U.S., for example, we, the, the, there's been no spectrum in the mid-band 
um, between three and six gigahertz allocated for 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 5G, which is where the, all the rest of the world is, is is developing and rolling out those capabilities. The U.S. has some spe- spectrum, a very high millimeter wave spectrum, the 28 gigahertz range. Um, and so companies like AT&T, you know, they're they're looking at some deployments, so some some campus deployments, because that that's a very short. Um, you know, short um, uh, range kind of kind of application, and sort of waiting for the U.S. government to free up some of that midband spectrum. So, so the rest of the world has focused on that midband, and then also on consumer devices, right? So, so when you go to China, you can buy any number of 5G capable handsets. Um, Apple's not going to have an iPhone with this 5G capable until later in the year, probably not in September, October. Um, so, part of that when you, when you say who's ahead, it's sort of as Andy mentioned, it sort of it really depends on the company, right? Like the carrier. If you look in Europe, for example, they're still doing spectrum auctions uh, on the one hand, but then company countries like like uh, the UK, um, Sweden, you know, the, the carriers are, are rolling out uh, consumer 5G capability. Um, pretty pretty widely uh, in in some of the more developed markets, but then the real, as we mentioned before, this real prop, this real promise of five G, which is this is this ultra low latency and the um, you know the machine to machine that requires a much bigger build out of infrastructure because because right. the, the the first part of five G is built on the existing on top of the existing four G infrastructure and gives you that faster speed to your phone, but the cool stuff you know autonomous vehicles and and remote surgery you need you need much more infrastructure for that and that's where andy's point is that you know the, the, the companies have to have the use cases and it's always this it's always like this it's always a chicken and egg thing you know how much infrastructure do we need so that, that companies can right. innovate on top of that uh, blah 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 so when you look at each country it's different right because the carriers have different financial situations and different and the demand is different, you know, from the coming coming from consumers or from from the business community. So it's it's really when you say who's ahead. I mean, I think China just just in sheer numbers of like base stations deployed, right? Um, I think China is is clearly sort of leading. I want to I want to ask Andy a question about about China and about China's five G networks. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of implicit criticism of a lot of the U.S. policy toward Huawei, saying that it's it's protectionist. Although you know there aren't U.S. companies. That it would be necessarily protecting, but what is China doing in terms of, of foreign vendors? Are, are Nokia and Ericsson being kept out of the network core or of, of out of, of you know important mobile edge computing in in China? Is that all Huawei or? Well, there certainly was some retaliation by the China government relative to uh, use of not Chinese technologies in, in government systems and, and networks, mm-hmm. for example. And the recent decisions, and I'm no expert in it because uh, I'm just not an expert in it, um, but I was certainly disappointed with the most recent announcements that indicated how much uh, of the various contracts uh, would be allocated to Nokia and Ericsson uh, versus Huawei, ZTE, and, and, and maybe someone else. Uh, it, it was certainly not the kind of numbers that I expected or hoped for. And I don't know the reasons for it, but uh, I, I was disappointed by it. But you can see how somebody would look at that and say that China is guilty of its own protectionism. I yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. 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 Now, so prior to your time at Huawei, you were at the White House, and you like like we said in the intro, helped draft the national strategy to secure cyberspace. Um, if you were still wearing that hat, and if you were evaluating a vendor like your company, like Huawei, with American national security as your very top concern. What would you advise, just you know, as objectively as you can, in terms of mitigation, in, in terms of an approach to actually mitigating risk? Is there anything right now that would give you real pause about allowing Huawei into our network core or even into RAN? 
uh, assuming that it wasn't a historic context where the administration, as this administration has done apparently just in the last few weeks, is the different forces within the administration have coalesced around or at least the, the anti-China approach, the anti-China theme uh, in the presidential election kind of and to out, outdo sure, Biden sure. in terms of being anti-China is, is, is clouding everything. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think national security is, is fundamentally important. Um, I think national security, though, gets into the whole geopolitical overlay. And so that context, maybe we'll talk about later, but the competitiveness of China and the U.S. is a factor in the decisions not even to have conversations with us. The, the fact that folks will not even consider dispassionately, what are the potential, potential benefits of Huawei being allowed to compete? in this market for the radio access networks uh, versus what are the kind of risk mitigation? And, and I would say that, you know, my sense and, and understanding of uh, perspective of number of government and private sector officials is, look, when you look at the risk and you look at the, the problems in cyberspace generally, we're not addressing the, the problems in cyberspace generally. I mean, it's disgraceful. Um, and it's hard, yes, but there are at least five nations of the world that can virtually implant hidden hardware and software. And China's one of them. And so when you look at the world and you look at particularly when you add in the, 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 the geographic access uh, to Nokia and Ericsson to how they are deeply embedded in, in, um, in China, you say, okay, what's necessary for risk mitigation? Well, it's several things and there's a lot of great things happening in DHS and NIST and DOD and NSA and, and, and whatever, but we got to remember, we got the telecom mobile operators, their responsibility, their capabilities. And it doesn't get a lot of publicity, but DHS and NIST are trying to get ideas for how they can build the ability to monitor networks better because the bad guys can hack into everything. And if we don't do more on that larger geo, the larger cyberspace issues, we allow the nation states to, to operate with impunity using generally non-sophisticated means. We have other things like the crypto AG situation, you know, the, the Swiss company that the CIA controlled. But so you got to look at it as overall was, risk that management. That's quite a story. Yeah. You have to look at it as overall risk management. And, and the telecom mobile operators do a very good job. We need to strengthen what NIST is trying to do, I guess, at the behest of, of uh, DHS. We got to find better network monitoring. We got to find better, and this when you come into the telecom equipment suppliers, the fact is, given the capabilities of the bad guys, we need to make sure that we address the risk in a comprehensive manner. We need to make sure there are uh, independent standards, there need to be independent testing, and there is testing out there. There are companies close to the intelligence community that knows how to test and find the products. You're talking about a, a model sort of like your your uh, cybersecurity evaluation center in the UK under GCHQ? Right, but, yes. but when you look at some of the lessons of, of, of you know, some of the great approaches the U.S. tries to do in terms of corporate America and compliance. And I know compliance is a dirty word in cybersecurity, but compliance is very important inside an organization to make sure you're doing what, what you need to do. So we need to make sure there's much greater transparency than telecom equipment suppliers. There need to be, re as the East-West Institute just recommended in the Tech Nationalism report that came out a couple weeks ago, there need to be regional transparency centers that are going to test the products. Plus, right. we need somebody to have the gonads to step up and say, we need an initiative 
in addition to having better procurement requirements for government agencies, for critical infrastructure that, that address cybersecurity risks, that address supply chain risks, we need a, an assurance and transparency initiative for all telecom equipment suppliers, us and our competitors. And I've got some ideas about what the specifics would be, but they, they should include experts having conversations with each of the major companies. What do we do and how? How do we make sure that what happens within our companies, we make sure we address the insider threat, use separation of duties, do independent testing. All these things are critically important. We also need folks to say, let's call on us and our competitors to create minimum industry best practices for assurance and transparency. Learning some of the lessons, such as the, the procurements for the CDM, the Continuous Diagnostic and Monitoring Program. And we ought to do what they do within the defense industrial base. Somebody's got to call be us on us and our competitors and say, are you guys prepared to step up the greater assurance and transparency? And they ought to say, okay, if you are, in addition to the two things, or maybe folks have better ones, I'm sure, Send experts into our operations and facilities to look at what we do and how we do it. How could third-party technologies, how could trusted computing, how could trusted cloud access to equipment and software be added to our, to our development, our processes, our manufacturing? So we can get some of the insights, some of the benefits of things like trusted foundries, which we can't afford to do everything in trusted foundries, but those concepts, we need experts to work on it, and we need greater R&D to make sure as we become dependent on 5G, our individuals and our organizations, our way of life, we need greater assurance and transparency. And it's like everybody's just distracted by looking at Huawei and saying, oh, block them. That's not going to address our problems. <laughs> I don't Absolutely. have an opinion on it, though, I mind you. <laughs> I I feel like you know your leadership surely understands though that that this isn't ultimately about the company it's about the country it's about that that it, they will never fully embrace the claims that you have any sort of independence vis-a-vis Chinese Communist Party in any country where there is a concept of a legal separation of powers where there's an independent they're, they're just never going to believe that uh in the, this techno authoritarian orwellian uh china of, of of their dark fantasies you're always going to be under their thumb yeah i mean and that's this geopolitical layer you're talking about so the fact is for, from my perspective i think the united states should really strive to tell the truth okay and, and that should be a dominant thing, tell the truth. And on issues where you want to make allegations, um, and I realize sometimes in the intelligence, whatever, national security, you don't want to let folks know what you know. But, you know, just to the recent example, the only real allegation I know of that the uh, U.S. government has made against Huawei relative to spying, everything else has been it's about the country, not the company, is the allegation that we retained the ability when we install, had installed equipment uh, in Europe, the uh, lawful intercept access capability, and so that we can spy. That's the only allegation of everything that I know about spying. So reportedly, that information was declassified. It was never revealed. And mm -hmm. very similar to what Eric Schmidt, formerly of Google, just said, about, oh, well, we know Huawei routers gathered information and we, we know it, it went to somebody that looks like it's the China government. We don't know how it happened, but we know it happened. Well, my two responses are, well, then give us the facts. We've got equipment all over the world. 
you know, we're one of the major leading players all over the world. If we've done bad stuff, if our people have done bad stuff, tell us so we can help reduce the risk. And by the way, when you were CEO of Google, what did you do about this? So the bottom line is, the fact is, we are prepared and can in fact prove that neither our equipment nor our people are subject to the undue influence of the China government relative to backdoors or gaining improper access to data we're sending it back to China with independent verification. We can prove that and we're prepared to, but nobody will talk to us about it. Paul, you know, when Huawei gets put on the naughty list, uh, there's collateral damage there, there to the broader ecosystem, isn't there? Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, about what happens to suppliers who are dependent on Huawei? I know that there's been a little bit of light recently that that uh, there's been a, a bit of a reprieve that some vendors are still going to be able to sell to Huawei just in the last couple of days. But uh, talk about the sorts of collateral damage that we sometimes see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I tend to focus on, right? I mean, I, our 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 clients tend to be all over the, the the landscape on this. So there's two big damages. One is on suppliers and supply chains, and the other is on the, the sort of customer side, the carrier side, right? So on the um, on the so on the supplier side, of course, you know, U.S. particularly the U.S. semiconductor industry has been very outspoken on this. Um, but their basic their argument basically is, you know, if 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 these if the U.S. takes these kinds of actions against Huawei and other Chinese companies, slapping them up with these entity list uh, restrictions, then Chinese companies are going to design out U.S. components. And of course, Huawei has done that, and other Chinese companies will design out U.S. semiconductors. And so the, the argument is that this will undercut their uh, R&D budgets and their ability to innovate uh, more broadly in the U.S. or you know for other other parts of, of other key clients like you know the U.S. military. Um, and so that's that's a that's a that's a big a big area where um, you know the U.S. Semiconductor industry will remain concerned about this going forward. Yeah. Um, on the carrier side, um, I think you have to think back to Barcelona in 2019. I was I was there at the Mobile World Congress, and this is before the the NDA list action. And the industry was 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 moving forward. Carriers were were planning to to, to do 5G contracts, uh, you know, with vendors, et cetera. And then and then this in the last year, of course, we've had this huge disruption. So all the carriers, um, particularly in Europe, that are that have that have a lot of Huawei equipment in their networks. Um, now have to sort of rethink their their capex plans going forward. Um, how, what do, how do I how do I um, you know how do I deal with uh, with this this new situation where Huawei is under pressure from these U.S. restrictions may not be able to um, you know meet its obligations. I mean these are these are the carriers have to think about these things. So the carriers now um, are are very concerned about this. Deutsche Telekom just this week, for example. Um, there was a leaked memo which basically said that banning Huawei would mean Armageddon for for wow. for, um, for the carrier and, and its plans to build and roll out 5G in Europe. Now you know the, the, this is a huge debate in Germany over this, and um, you know the some the, the the German Parliament has become involved in this um, over the last year. And so one one lawmaker said that he called that uh, he called the this um, Armageddon statement frivolous. So so it's become a real hot potato in. Uh, this whole issue in Germany, but it's but it's 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 it has thrown a big monkey wrench into the plans of those carriers who already, as I mentioned earlier, you know they were thinking about how do they justify rolling out this new infrastructure, which is going to be costly, and you know the use cases aren't quite there yet, and so this adds another huge uncertainty uh, into their plans going forward in terms of how they roll out 5G and, and you know under 
under what circumstances. So, and Andy, I know you've talked often about uh, how the aggressive restrictions that the U.S. government has placed on companies doing business with Huawei is actually costing jobs in America. I, I'm definitely sympathetic with that claim. I wonder, though, are we at a point right now where overly paranoid national security concerns are actually damaging national security by making American companies, in, in indeed the whole U.S. economy, potentially much less competitive? I think there are a lot of people in the world... Uh, who have things to contribute to the discussion, who are afraid to say anything. Um, and I think uh, you see more of uh, the th- nearly 300 companies that, that want to sell to Huawei, you see uh, more of them working through associations because they don't, they're, they're just afraid to, to speak up and get slammed. They're afraid to get right. in trouble of the administration. And in fact, a couple months ago, and, and uh, they may have substantively changed their position, but you saw the reaction um, when uh, there was an issue about further tightening of the entity list restrictions. That's the ability of American companies to, to sell to Huawei. Right. Um, DOD led a submission uh, supported by Treasury that basically said, look, um, the American semiconductor industry needs the $12 billion a year on average over a number of years that, that <laughs> Huawei buys from the nearly 300 companies. And that it directly affects the ability of those American companies to do business. It very directly affects their ability to do R&D. And it affects their ability to support the U.S. defense industrial base, okay? This is coming from the DOD itself. It was from DOD. And, of course, now after all the pressure that has to go away, they can't talk about it. But that's an example of where somebody, and, and they got really slammed by some of the elective officials. Or, oh, you know, and, and it's this, this geopolitical hostility toward China with a whole lot of reasons why the U.S. government is really angry with China over, over a number of years. Uh, and afraid of China with the rise of China, both politically and militarily, um, uh, vis-a-vis the United States. But uh, they spoke up. So there's, there's an inability to, to talk about the benefits and risks. And that's part of the example of why I guess the U.S. government people won't talk with us is that they know it's a complete waste of time because they have nothing to talk about. I mean, we could be open to some pretty extraordinary things, uh, but they won't even they won't even talk to us. And the twelve billion a year, you know, some econometric models say that translates to forty to fifty thousand jobs, direct impact jobs, mm-hmm. if those companies aren't allowed to sell to Huawei. And we want to continue to buy from those companies. We want to continue to to, to, to buy from from Google. But if we're forced to go somewhere else, we're going to go there, and we're not going to come back. And how are those jobs going to be maintained? I, I don't I don't get it. Andy, Paul, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I think we got to leave it there for now. It was a fascinating conversation. Uh, so before I let you go, let's do get the recommendations in. Before that, I want to tell listeners what they can do to help us out. Dear Seneca podcast listeners and fans, we were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys, and I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, We are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today, SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. 
All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions. But we have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com. And help us out. Thank you so much. Okay, on to recommendations. Andy, let's start with you. What, what do you have for our listeners this week? Well, I, I, I was struggling to come up with one. And so I've come up with two books that are, that are just hugely different. Um, and at least one is extraordinarily controversial, particularly in the times in which we live. Mm. Uh, one is The People's History of the United States. Howard Zinn, yeah. That I'm several hundred pages into. It's just an astounding piece of work. Uh, I understand there's a counter book that was written about it, but I encourage everybody to read A People's History of the United States. Uh, and the second one is uh, The Road Less Traveled, uh, which oh. is one of the most sold books uh, in the history of, of, I guess, the world. But it's really a good book for people to help with your attitudes about, about life and, and dealing with issues. And it's, uh, it's really an excellent, excellent read. Two excellent recommendations, um, and both that I'm, I'm familiar with and would, would, would second for sure. Uh, Paul, what, what about you? What you got for us? Do I get two? Awesome. You, you can do two. Uh, yeah, go for okay, two. Okay. So I, the first one is, I think, a little bit along the themes we've been talking about is the new book, Superpower Showdown. By oh, Bob yeah. Davis and Ling Ling Wei. Great, great look at the trade, uh, how the trade uh, conflict or, or negotiations <laughs> unfolded over the last uh, two and a half, three years. Really, really well done. I think they did the best job of, of any of the reporters doing, you know, really sticking and on this really complicated topic and bringing out all the, and, and the other one, the other book is uh, an old favorite, the Tibetan book of living and dying. I think it's a mm-hmm. really good by Sogyal Rinpoche. It's a, it's a really good look at sort of how the Tibetans view uh, life. And um, it's again, sort of a, a good, like how to, how to live, live by book um, that from a very interesting cultural perspective. Um, Hey, thanks. Those are those are excellent. I'm gonna go non-book and uh, recommend something that I found on YouTube. Uh, there's this guitarist from the UK named Joe Parrish. Uh, his YouTube channel has all these videos of him playing and recording these extremely faithful arrangements of, of classical music masterpieces, mostly on electric guitar and you know bass and drums. So these are pieces like you know. Night on Bald Mountain that was written by Modest Mussorgsky but made famous by Rimsky-Korsakov. Shostakovich's Piano Concerto Number 2. A few of the better pieces from, you know, from The Planets by Gustav Holst, like Mars, Bringer of War, and and Jupiter, Bringer of Jollity. These are not easy pieces to, to, to do on guitar. But the one that just blew my mind absolutely was The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky which is just a fantastically complicated piece and it, these are these are exquisite exquisite renditions of it I'm really I mean uh, one classical music friend of mine who is a, a, a huge AI 
uh, sort of superstar who now is back at NVIDIA. He was at Baidu for a while, Brian Cotton Saro. Uh, he told me it just, he, he just was weeping listening to this this guy because uh especially the shostakovich it's just it's phenomenal so it turns out that he has his own band uh which is called albion uh like you know the old name for the the island of, of britain uh albion check them out too and it turns out uh, this guy is now the guitarist uh, the touring guitarist at least for the old band jethro tall and he's got to be just in his 20s he's just a really young looking guy uh, so phenomenal, uh, Joe Parrish, P-A-R-R-I-S-H. Uh, definitely check that out if you're into music. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It was a, re- it was a pleasure. Uh, it, was, it was terrific. And and Paul, man, thanks again for for coming on. Yeah, it was great. great. My pleasure. And it's, it's and it's a tough tough and complicated topic, but I hope we shed a little light on it. Yeah, no, I think it's been it's been it's a very very useful conversation to have, and I I, I hope that we'll have more of them. Look forward cool. to it. Okay, take care, Jason. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts in the network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.